Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. I'm a journalist, an author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, a cancer survivor so far. In this episode, what did they find? How bad was it? And once you know the answers to those questions, you have part of the answer to the big one. Am I going to need chemo? Episode 6. Welcome to having to weigh out the theory behind it all. The tumors die before you do. Being a surgical patient, any kind of surgical patient, inevitably means little surrenders of privacy, of decision-making ability. Whether you're taking your not-quite-powerful power walks on the floor in a gown and no underwear having a nurse remove your catheter, having all kinds of people checking the toilet bowl to keep track of the latest happenings after surgery on your digestive tract, and the people, lots of people, feeling around your belly. Your agency, your ability to say yes and no, is given up as part of the deal you make with medical world when you walk through the hospital door. True, it's your body, but there's a lot you don't know about it. You put yourself, your future, into the hands of people who've spent their entire adult lives mastering the knowledge, and in return, the best way they know how, these sudden, intimate strangers are going to help your body work again. It was three days since a cancerous length of colon was removed from me, and what was left of me was going to be allowed to walk out of the hospital. But not to go home, not quite yet. The surgeon and the medical team asked if I could stay in New York one more day just to be sure everything's okay. You can check out of your hotel tomorrow morning and go home if everything seems okay. In stretchy pants I would never normally use for a stroll around town, I thanked the nurses, said goodbye, and took my first tentative steps out into the real world. I wanted to eat and there wasn't really a great selection of places to go. But there was a Cuban restaurant nearby. My wife asked, Are you sure? I don't think you should be eating that. My best friend asked, Are you sure? It might be a little gassy. But what I knew is not only how hungry I was, but how much I wanted to be able to do something I just felt like doing. I wasn't going to go crazy, Caribbean comfort food was within reach. Rice and beans, fried plantains, roast pork. And that was what I was going to eat. And because they love me, my little posse walked slowly and steadily to the Cuban lunch place. I chowed down, even had a little flan, egg custard, to finish off my first real-world post-op meal. We crowded around our little table, talking about topics other than whether I still had cancer in me. I couldn't shower yet, so I would be washing myself at the sink for a little while. I wasn't back to being me again. Not yet. My daughters, satisfied that I was as okay as I was going to get for now, went back to their lives. My son in Chicago would come visit once we were back in Philadelphia. I reassured everyone I was okay as okay as I could be under the circumstances, and I considered what came next. I had to come back to New York in a week for a follow-up, and we would talk about it then. 
You hear terrible stories about chemotherapy, about being sick nonstop, about changes to your appearance, about the assault on every part of you. And from people with different kinds of cancers, on different kinds of drugs, that it feels bad, but bearable, that you adjust, that the worst effects are right around dosing, but die down over the course of your treatment. I literally had no idea what to expect. There was this crazy seesawing that went on between calm relief after all I had just gone through and rising anticipation of what was coming. Back in New York, a week after leaving the hospital, I met with my surgeon, a little more poking around my healing wounds, when my ascending colon and part of my transverse colon were removed, out went my appendix with it, and three dozen adjacent lymph nodes. They had to check that the tumors had not breached the walls of the colon, and no cancer cells had taken up residence in those nodes. Lymph nodes are spread throughout your body, a vital part of your immune system, running like railroad tracks from your legs, through your midsection, up into your chest, shoulders, and neck. You often hear about them in connection with breast cancer when they're commonly removed as part of mastectomies. Well, as it turned out, I wasn't going to get away easy. Cancer cells were in three of the 36 lymph nodes. I was going to need chemo. But it was something I would decide with my oncologist. Looking at my belly was getting to be like a handshake. Everybody wanted to do it. My oncologist took a look and also said I was healing well. Even though I could not sleep on my stomach, my habitual way, I was sleeping better than I had in over a year. The combination of my improving health, my radically better blood chemistry, and my mood and attitude following suit had me feeling better than I had in a very long time. The doctor said, Mr. Suarez, basically you are, as of this moment, cancer-free. You could choose to end your treatment right now, but I would not do that. He said I had two choices of chemotherapies. One was a 16-week course, the other a 26-week course. He suggested the 16-week because the results he was seeing from the field indicated a much lower rate of cancer recurrence. I'm a pretty good reporter, so I asked the obvious next question. If it's a shorter course and gives better results, why would anybody choose six months? Why would anybody choose to feel bad longer? Because, the oncologist said, the 16-week course is much more toxic. The side effects are much more severe. The therapy is often referred to by the shorthand CAPEOX for capecetabine combined with oxaliplatin. I asked the oncologist what he would do if he had just had a resection. He said he would not hesitate to choose the more toxic but more effective treatment. All I could see was pages peeling back off a calendar, the way they show the passage of time in old black-and-white movies. I wanted to get back to work. I wanted to get this over with. And he recommended it. So K-Box it was going to be. I'd feel worse, I figured, but for a shorter time. I could handle that. Capecetabine is what's called an anti-metabolite. It stops your cells from making and repairing DNA, addressing the basic problem with cancer. Cells are making new copies of themselves for no apparent reason, colonizing your body with rogue parts of you, 
that shut down or interfere with the normal operation of you. These pills taken every day, morning and night, would hijack that process. There would be no new me for a while. The oxaloplatin was administered intravenously every three weeks. I had just been in the hospital and had at various times lines in the crook of my arm, in my forearm, in the back of my hand. So I asked, dripped into my arm? Oh, no, the doctor said. The oxaloplatin is so toxic it would wreck every blood vessel in your arm. No, we've got to insert a port in your chest. It will run into the largest vein in your body. And even then, it has to be dripped in very slowly. This was new and not very welcome information. More surgery, even if it's minor, and a liquid so toxic it could wreck your veins being introduced into your circulatory system. Yeah, sounds great. The side effects of the capsetabine included nausea, diarrhea, soreness, redness and peeling on the palms of the hands and soles of the feet, changes in vision, fluid buildup, mouth sores, dry skin, rashes, brittle nails, changes in texture of the hair, and finally, flatulence. The oxaloplatin caused nerve tingling like the pills, heightened risk of infection because of the suppression of white and red blood cells, nausea, bruising and skin discoloration, increased sensitivity to cold, changes in the taste of food, inability to regulate body temperature, swelling, pain, and difficulty with your throat, easily tiring while speaking, and erectile dysfunction. Oh boy, when can we start? One month after surgery, it turns out, so I'd have a few more weeks of trying to get back to normal before choosing to not be normal. The drugs have to be authorized by your insurance company. I was pretty much out of work, but still on the COBRA insurance plan offered by my last employer. The authorization is not a SNAP process and involves only the very few pharmacies that handle these drugs. You don't just stroll over to the corner drugstore and pick this stuff up. The rounds of pills were going to have to be delivered to my home and cost more than $40,000. But there was the little matter of getting that port put in my chest first. Not a big deal, I was told. Pretty quick, in and out of the nearby university hospital. I met the anesthetist. A doctor showed me what they were putting in my chest. It was a plastic affair with a mesh opening that would go right under my skin and a long tail that would trail into my vena cava, that big vein. Back in a gown, another line in my arm, back on a gurney being rolled into a freezing operating room, my chest and shoulder were uncovered and the rest of me covered, including a cloth over my face. For reasons I don't completely understand, the cloth over my face was making me a little crazy. My right arm was immobilized since the port was going in the right side of my chest. My left arm had lines in it for anesthesia and saline. I wanted to take that cloth off my face until it was time to get down to business. I was told that would not be okay. I needed to scratch my face. And anyway, where the hell was the doctor? I felt my anxiety rising. I said to the nurse, I need to scratch my face. She said, I'm sorry, you can't do that. 
Tell me where to scratch and I'll do it. And she did the predictable thing, wrapped her fingertips in a cloth and gently rubbed my forehead. Not working. I needed to scratch. And where's the doctor? I waited until I didn't hear any voices right next to the table. Remember, I can't see anything because there's a cloth on my face. And I inched my arm slowly up toward my face so as not to attract attention and, ah, scratched away. I was scolded. Mr. Suarez, I asked you not to do that, please. I answered in a voice that was starting to sound foreign and frantic to me. Listen, I'm freezing. This cloth on my face is making me nuts. Why can't you just knock me out until we're done? Because the doctor wasn't there yet, and they couldn't put me to sleep until he was ready to begin. Before too long, he arrived, apologized, and I drifted off into dreamland. He said I would feel a little tugging and discomfort in my chest, and I did. I was very conscious of this new piece of hardware in my upper chest and the lump it made under my skin. I walked out of there frantic. When I met my wife in the waiting room, I couldn't even fully explain what was wrong, but I was very amped up, and I didn't like having that hunk of plastic in my body. Two weeks of healing remained, and then we'd get down to business. Hey nerds, I'm Sarah, the paper nerd, and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, the paper fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Pills arrived just before I was due to begin taking them. A big jar. The dosage, adjusted by my weight, was four 500 milligram tablets in the morning and four more at night. I took the first four and didn't feel anything much. Then a short time later, I headed for my first infusion of oxaliplatin. It involved sticking a fine needle through my skin and into the port then a little saline to flush out the line, and then came the chemical. As I watched the tiny, slow drips head from the bag, hung from the pole, and into me, I could only figure it really was toxic. 33 milliliters was the amount to be infused. Two and a quarter tablespoons, not much more than an ounce, and it took two hours to drip that little bit of liquid into me. As the oxaliplatin moves through your circulatory system, it lights up your nerves like current moving through wires. I could feel nerves in my legs, my arms, my face firing up. It's a terrible sensation. This always came on top of your morning round of pills. Because they were nauseating, it helped a lot to have a big breakfast in you before that dose. 
And if you weren't awake for too long after you took the nighttime round, that helped too. My oncologist told me he didn't want me to lose weight. I wanted to lose weight. He said, fine, just not now. As it turned out, that was not going to be a problem because in my case, eating was the only thing that kept me from feeling sick all the time. So I ate and packed on the pounds. But now I also had to bundle up when it was 50 degrees outside. When it was in the 40s, I wrapped my face in a huge scarf against the nerve pain that followed infusions. The pain in my hands and feet, the neuropathy, was exaggerated by the feeling that I was freezing, even sitting in a warm house. My lack of control over my voice was scary, seeing as how I had made a living with that voice for decades. The bag with your chemo drugs dripping into your body and the bag containing the little bottle of pills both had biohazard emblems on them. They were dangerous chemicals, poisonous. There's nothing like taking four pills out of a bag warning people they should dispose of the contents as a biohazard and then swallowing them. My wife was warned to flush the toilet an extra time if she used it after me, The nurse dropped her voice in pitch and volume and asked if I was sexually active. At first, I didn't put two and two together. You'll have to use condoms for the next six months, I was told. It was my first trip back to that aisle for a very long time. I was taking poison. But I was big, and as it turned out, getting bigger. If there were cancerous cells or tumors... They were tiny. I was going to poison myself on purpose, and the cancer was going to die before I did. For this to work, I had to voluntarily take 4,000 milligrams a day of drugs from a biohazard bag, and with nobody watching, nobody checking, make myself sick. Thanks for listening to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm starting to feel a little better after a long, hard year of being sick. They're going to let me get a little better before I get sick all over again. These aren't the things I would have chosen to happen to me, but they are the things that happen, as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Maybe even you or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. To somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. In the next episode, I gotta have faith. I won't sing you the George Michael song as much as I'm tempted, but instead talk some about having the faith of a lifetime tested and having to apply all the things you hear about in church to your real life. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.